Welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. My name's Kia Milburn, and I'm joined as usual by my good friend Nadia Idle. Hello. And my good friend Jeremy Gilbert. Hello. And today we're talking about democracy. So why are we talking about democracy at this point? Well, there's a bunch of reasons, aren't there? So there's there's a number of current tendencies that seem to be very anti-democratic in contemporary politics. So there's clearly an ongoing anti-democratic animus on the part of the political right. We're seeing fairly explicit voter suppression in the UK, such as the measures to insist that voters have to have photo ID, which everybody knows and the Tories admit is just going to exclude about a million people from voting, none of whom would historically have voted for the Tories. What else? What else is happening from the right, do you think? Well, I mean, you can see in the the US that that pretty conscious and overt attack on democracy, particularly voter suppression, is even more evident. Can't remember how many bills are going through. Local Senate, something like 36 voter suppression bills are going through, being pushed by the Republican Party. You know, and I and it's a wider trend. It's a wider trend against democracy, or to push back, or to pen in democracy. There's a reason for it. The reason is, I think, the right, and particularly the sort of the the contemporary right or contemporary conservatism, if you want to put it that way, they sort of recognise that there are in many countries, including particularly the US, actually, but also including the UK, there are sort of demographic tendencies which mean that. That the conservative uh, cohort, the conservative voters, are, are probably minority a minority now, and and are very much likely to be a minority in the future. You know, one of the one of the big the talking points on, the, on in, in conservative circles in in the US is the United States is not a democracy; it's a republic, and that's that's to sort of lean and and sort of defend the anti-majoritarian parts of their con- constitutional setup, which is. The Supreme Court, which is pretty much captured by the right, the Senate, which is an anti—you know—the Senate was created in order to to ensure that the sort of slaveholding parts of the of of America would uh, stay on board with the Republic, basically. To, so it gives far more uh, political weight to somebody who lives in depopulated um, rural states than it does to you know states with huge huge populations like california so california's got i can't remember what the population of california is it's absolutely huge and they've got two senators the same as uh, as um jeremy you know america anyway the same as a, <laughs> a state with which is with very south small. carolina let's say south, south carolina, carolina yeah yeah, yeah. so the upper chair the american upper chamber the senate which has far more power than say the house of lords in britain exactly mm. is um organized that way yeah, but I mean, we would say as well that, you know, what you're seeing in the UK is a reliance on our anti-democratic parts of the constitution, which is basically first past the post. But isn't there, can I, can we just take us just one step back? I know we want to do a good breakdown of like the different anti-democratic turns from, from the right and the centre and the left, but isn't there a kind of overarching issue, which is effectively the dissolution of 
effective institutions in the West and, you know, many places in the world as well. And it's in fact that turn that has just made a lot of people, even before they step into politics, whether it be, you know, consciously or unconsciously with the, with their, with their actions, that these institutions are no longer working for them. And so there's a, there's a, there's a feeling that democracy perhaps um, maybe this is a crass way of putting it, but it isn't relevant anymore because the, the social contract doesn't work. So it's each man for themselves in effect. And we get, we see things like happened in the US in terms of uh, with the capital, et cetera. And I know we're going to talk about other examples from, from along the political spectrum, but isn't, isn't that the kind of backdrop to all of this? Yeah, I think it's a good point. Yeah. It's that, that's the sort of longer term trend of, 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 of hollowing out democracy. Um, and you know, yeah, hollowing out democracy and and, and bringing in things sort of technocratic sort of rule, which has been going on for a long, long time. And in fact, what we've pro- what we've seen over the last five or six years is some sort of attempt to or dissatisfaction with that sort of technocratic rule and attempt to to have some sort of return to democracy. It's a bit difficult to talk about that. But one of the ways people talk about it is in terms of like populist threats from the right and the left, etc. But some sort of uh, reanimation of popular political participation in some sort of form. I would say whether we're talking in abstract terms or in purely formal terms to do with like representative democracy, in either, in any of those terms, I think we can say, well, there's a period in the middle decades of the 20th century when for better or worse, the institutions of things like parliamentary democracy they seem to more or less produce governments which more or less are doing what a majority of people in that society want them to do. And those institutions are capable of, for example, vetoing really unpopular wars and ensuring that the general direction of public policy is one that benefits more people than it harms. Exactly. And that they and those institutions did benefit a section of the population. And at least there was a perception that these institutions were for the benefit of, you know, the public good. And even if, if in fact, there were loads of groups who didn't benefit. But there was that kind yeah. of perception, those, those institutions that held up that democratic, you know, contract. And we're yeah. definitely not there now. This no. is not where we are. And I would say there's a sort of weak liberal centrist perspective, which usually thinks that this this breakdown of those democratic institutions and what I call democratic efficacy has happened quite recently. It's happened because of Trump or because of Johnson or maybe because of David Cameron being an idiot or something. And, right. And I think that is a completely useless historical perspective. It's quite clear that breakdown really happened in the 70s. And that the whole period since the 70s has really seen the implementation of political pro- projects. They never had the kind of mandate from the broader public that the ones that preceded them did. So this is, my, you know, one of my favourite catchphrases, like nobody really voted for neoliberalism. You know, hardly anybody actually wanted it. The Conservatives didn't want it. They thought they were getting something quite different when they first voted for people like Thatcher. They thought they were going to get like a return to the 50s. And then... The left obviously didn't want it. And the people who voted for Blair mostly, despite what it said in the manifesto, they thought they were voting for like a restoration of social democracy. They didn't get it. So, I mean, really in historical terms, the period of like something like democratic efficacy, I think only really lasts from like the 30s to the 70s. And it's so it, it's been over for longer than it ever lasted, actually. It's a strong narrative, though. It still exists in a lot of people's heads. There's still a lot of people that I think still think that that world is possible again. 
Yeah, I mean, that that point, Nadia, that leads us into the other places where you can see a, like, a, bit, a real anti-democratic turn or basically yeah, anti-democratic arguments being being put forward. And that's from the centre. You know, the centre, what we let's just call it the neoliberal centre. And it's always the neoliberal centre, you know, it wants a technocratic politics. It wants a politics which is run by technocrats and, and not, you know, it's not overly concerned about uh, a diminishing uh, democratic participation, but the way that's playing out at the moment is a reaction to Corbynism, basically the reaction to the sort of the wave of of political enthusiasm that surrounded Corbynism, and you know the hundreds of thousands of people who flooded into the Labour Party around that. Recently, my my MP Rachel Reeves, who's the MP for my constituency, Leeds West, declared that um, a lot of a lot of members had been leaving her constituency Labour Party, and that that was a good thing because they didn't share Labour val- values. <laughs> I mean, it's my CLP, so I, I, she's talking about people I know, really, and it's a pretty obnoxious thing thing to say, but it, it reveals something. It reveals the, the idea that like that, that, that the, the people who are now have control of the Labour Party do not want a mass party. You know, they want something. They want a what's called a cartel party, basically, a small professionalised party. And if you have members, that's good because perhaps they can they can feed in money or they can you know do some door knocking during elections but that should be pretty much the extent of the participation and so you know what went along with the the period of democratic efficiency that Jeremy was talking about earlier that period in which parliamentary democracy seemed to produce something that the the majority of the population wanted what went along with that was were mass parties basically the conservative party was was the biggest party it had five million members i think at one point yeah, the in the party. mid 50s yeah in the mid 50s and you know the like let, let's be clear part of the reason people joined that was because it was a it was some sort of like after personal enrichments a bit much but you know uh, well it was a marker of class belonging i mean yeah. in the 50s the conservative party just became what it meant to be middle class in britain was to be a tool was to be in the conservative party I mean, that yeah. was. The, I mean, five million people is basically the entire British middle class at that time. Like, we're in, arguably, pretty or yeah, a very large chunk of it. That's significant. I didn't realise that. Yeah, but there's huge. also been a, a, a. There's always been a chunk of working class Tories. I mean, my partner Alice's dad was a working class Tory, and for him, it was. It was. I want to associate aspirational. myself. Aspirational. Aspirational. That was the word I was searching for earlier. At Nadia, it is. I want to associate myself with the middle class. Basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even yeah. though we're petrol pump attendant, <laughs> I'm going to go and knock on the door for the Tories, and then it'll, I'll feel as though I'm belonging to that sort of. All of that is hollowed out. Basically, the Conservative Party is just a, a shell, uh, and the, the the Labour Party is just a, a mere shadow of what it was. But during the during the Corbyn years, you know, it grew to 500,000 500, plus members. And now I, I believe they've lost 150,000 members. We don't know because they, they won't release proper um, membership figures. So what we saw was that, that during, during democratic efficiency, you had these big mass parties and real mass participation in politics. And it also had a really high level of, of like political literacy, you'd put it that way, a basic understanding of how things work, basically. And that declines from the from the eighties, just as mass participation in political parties uh, and other associational activities as well. So there's that Robert Putnam um, book, Bowling Alone, where he just you know all, all of these sort of like community activities, including bowling leagues and all that, just drop off a cliff during the eighties and nineties and, and onwards, basically. 
the point is that's what the political center want that's their aim they want that to they want that basically <laughs> well it's partly because they the what we now call the political sector center really only came into existence to sort of under those circumstances didn't it you know the 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 modern professional political class emerges really in the 80s like as partly in response to all and as part of those changes and in response to those changes so i mean that, that's partly why people like reeves are just absolutely just existentially cannot cope with the idea for mass democratic politics is because well their whole mode of being in the world was formed by its absence and and as a response to its absence so I mean, that's why, yeah, the PLP just had this absolute meltdown over the, all these people joining the party and yeah. having sort of democratic expectation. It's, it is also because the Labour right, they they basically do believe some very odd things <laughs> and basically nobody supports them. <laughs> they, you know, they, they appeal to a very small constituency. And so if there's democracy on the table, they're basically not going to get very far. I think they probably don't. Yeah. They don't label it as dem- being anti-democratic. They just think it's, it's. I, I can't imagine how it look. Well, think what it looks like from their own perspective because they live in such a bubble. The Labour right. I can tell you how they. They have a very worked out justification, which is that it's in the nature of party politics that people who join parties are more committed and are further along the political spectrum than ordinary voters. Therefore, by definition, if you're someone who's joined a party, you're probably not actually representative of the wider public. So by being against their own members, they are in fact more representative of the wider public. That's, that's that, amazing. <laughs> that's that's like the perspective of the tra- what we call the traditional mm. right, the old right. I mean, the Blairites have a kind of historically had a sort of more interesting position in a way, I think. And their position was that indeed, I mean, I would say that the reason for the ending of sort of democratic efficacy is because the models of the institutional models of democracy that we got in the middle of the 20th century they were designed for the conditions of mass industrial democracy of mass industrial society they were designed for the society in which well you know people you've got millions of people living relatively homogenous lives like they're all working in massive factories and if they're women with children they're not working at all and you have this idea of the housewife which is this sort of cross class idea of what it means to be a woman for a few decades and under those conditions, like, well, yeah, maybe it's a relatively reasonable proposition. Like, how do you do democracy? Now, you have these massive things called parties and you have an elections like every four or five years. And then the platform that gets the most votes then gets implemented over the next four or five years. And I think, I mean, lots of people, people on the right in some cases, but also like the people on the left, especially the new left, were saying from the early 60s, saying, look, this isn't really going to work. Our society becomes more differentiated, more complicated. And so you're either going to have to have more participatory forms of democracy and many more forms of like localised democracy and deliberative democracy, uh, or it's just going to break down. It's not going to work. And the latter is is what happened. And the Blairites had their own version of that analysis, actually, in the 90s. And But their analysis was, yeah, this kind of old-fashioned representative democracy, it can't really represent what people want anymore. But what we're going to do is we're going to use, like, focus groups and polling and stuff to find out what people really want. And then we'll give it to them. Then we'll that, So that's where you get the beginning of this idea of... Um, 
you know, policies just being determined by focus groups. And for these people like Philip Gould, the sort of one of the architects of New Labour, it was they saw it as a form of democracy that was like more responsive to the complexity of things. And also that's why they ended up becoming neoliberals, because they became convinced that market mechanisms where it would ultimately be a more responsive way of giving people what they wanted than than trying to do it through sort of mass democracy. So, so you know, you can't possibly please everybody, like, but with what kind of schools they want. So, what do you do? Well, you you let schools compete and let people choose and let the market decide. I mean, it's totally not. I mean, it's nonsense. It doesn't work because it doesn't fulfil the one function of actual democracy, which is to enable people to make collective decisions with other people. It works by just reducing everybody to a single kind of individualized consumer. Um, and that's why it just didn't work as a dem- as a response to the democratic crisis. It was a total failure. But they did have a sort of theory of it. I mean, I think, to be honest, I think people like Mandelson, who were really committed to that in the 90s, I think they've pretty much abandoned it, to be honest. Because another... I mean, another thing, if you think about the traditional Labour right, I was thinking about that phrase from Rachel Reeves, that all when she said all these people, she's happy people are leaving the party because they don't share Labour values. If you ask, well, what does she mean by Labour values? I mean, frankly, for the, for the traditional Labour right, and this does go back to the early 20th century, what Labour values means is total deference to the Parliamentary Labour Party. Now, that's all it means, basically. That Their idea is the function of, we live in a parliamentary democracy, the function of the Labour Party is to get Labour MPs elected and then serve them by any means necessary, by any means possible. And basically anyone else who wants any other thing to the Labour Party to do any other thing, doesn't understand what the Labour Party really is or is for, and is uh, at its worst is some sort of an enemy of parliamentary democracy. And that, that's how they still, even to this day, they slip into this kind of Cold War rhetoric and this red baiting and kind of anti-communism, because they do really believe like parliamentary democracy is this sort of sacred institution. But where do they think they get their wages from? They, well, they think they get them from the public. They think the, the electorate. They think that's who they're responsible to, the electorate. I mean, it's nonsense. I'm not defending it. No, I know. Their, no, I know. Yeah. I just think it's 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 very, it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting. You're, I mean, you're right, of course. It's just when you lay it out like that, it just does sound like madness, but it's very prevalent. If we want to think about about democratic moments in, in music or in culture, like one of the things you'd always point to would be like punk rock or something. But if we wanted to look within punk rock, you know, one of the moments we'd really, really want to look at is, is you know, the band Crass and the, the sort of anarcho-punk movement that sort of emerged out of them. Because that's that was the point at which this sort of idea of DIY, do it yourself, anybody can do it, really sort of gets affirmed, I think. So Crass, they're a punk band, but the, the basis of the group were actually veterans of the of the sixties counterculture, and it, they, they, in fact they lived totally sort of in violation of this sort of urban sort of shtick of punk. They they were living in a commune in a farmhouse in Essex, Dial House, which is still there, still still going. And so there, there are these countercultural sort of people. Penny Rimbo and G Vouch had both been to art school, for instance. You got this sort of like stuff, and then they meet a load of like young working class people from Essex. Steve Ignorant being. Be, be, being the this, this sort of lead singer, the person who took on being a lead singer. They're really interesting because like, they've got this, this democratic stick of like anybody can do it. and like, But the way they did that was through basically quite avant-garde means. <laughs> so G Voucher and, 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 and Penny Rimbo had been to art school and they take up all of this sort of avant-garde art sort of stuff. G Voucher's 
artwork which gets put onto the onto the record covers is like really influenced by like anti-fascist um uh, john hartfield john hartfield etc from the from the 30s um you know you'd go to one of their shows and it would be like these films these sort of like avant-garde films being shown they'd all be dressed in sort of like almost like uniforms they'd be like you know they took stencils that they they really brought into vogue the idea of stenciling messages everywhere stenciling their 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 graphic, which is sort of like a graphic of a of a snakey in itself, etc. Um, and the music would be, you know, really really variable for for punk. And there was a there's an article that went around recently called Crass Turns Crass Goes Disco by uh, by a guy called Sean Smith. Um, it's really really long, but like you know, at the beginning there's there's all these testimonies of of people around the country just finding these incredibly powerful moments. Of, of going to their first crass gig and like you know inevitably from that they then go and participate in country they go and start a fans you know go and state a band etc etc if we wanted to play a song by them to be honest it'd probably be more more interesting to play a remix so basically recently the crass or, or the, the the veterans of crass crass dissolved in 1984 the veterans of crass they they put all the stems of their songs out and asked for remixes and out of those a whole series of interesting ones came about i think we should play this remix of punk is dead the remix by use knife and partly because that, that, that the, the punk is dead you know it just it starts off with just a yes that's right punk is dead just another cheap product of the consumer's head so it's that sort of critique and then there's some of the, the lyrics are i'm tired of staring through shit stained glass I'm tired of staring up a superstar's ass. I've got an ass and a crap and a name, and I just want my 15 minutes fame. So it's the song is really about that. Like, never mind all of the poses in London. Like, do it yourself. I think, you know, broadly speaking, we can understand from all this why there's there's been significant attacks on any kind of democratic resurgence from the political centre, because the whole political centre, as it's been constituted over the past few decades, is an anti-democratic institution, a sort of post-democratic institution. But then, Keir, you were also saying when we were preparing for this that you wanted us to talk about anti-democratic tendencies from the left so yeah i mean i, I it's one of those things i, th- I think i can sense a, a turn against democracy or or yeah a turn against democracy among some s- sections of the left or or a, perhaps a flirtation with a turn against democracy is the way you'd put it and it, or what's interesting is the arguments mobilized are very similar to the arguments that you were discussing just now not so much the blairites but this idea that that um you know, members of parties—they're—they're—they're they're, they're different to the general public, and therefore, you know, if we have too much democracy, we just alienate the general public. And it's a sort of argument that's been put forward around like left organisations such as Momentum, right? About that, you know, we couldn't—if we have too much democracy, we just, you know, we'll just um, reflect the values of the current left, which is too young, urban, metropolitan, etc. And so, we'll alienate the real working class out in the small town somewhere. And I put it that way because like, I think underneath that, right, resting underneath this sort of discussion about democracy is basically a, a disagreement about class, basically, <laughs> what the current class composition is and beyond that, what the current conjuncture is. And that disagreement about class is this this idea that, 
You know, if you looked at who got infused by Corbynism, it was young people, perhaps young graduates. And of course, they've got different, they're different to the people who we need to get in the smaller towns in the red wall and all these sorts of things it's a real real similarity of argument between like the labor right and some parts of the of of the left you know that's it's not something to completely dismiss that that that, that argument right what you have to understand is you know that that sort of split is a split within the the working class you know and so the the idea that you should um, get rid of democracy uh, uh, so that we don't get contaminated, so that the ideas upon which we refound the the left after Corbynism don't get contaminated by the liberalism of the of the cities or something like that. But that but that kind of makes sense in a way because if you've got this vision, which is the project, whether you are left or right or, or centrist or whatever, if you've got this concept of the project and you're thinking, I think we're going to talk about this later, whether democracy is a means to an end or an end in itself. And if you're, you're finding that the democratic structures or processes are not, are, not, are not producing the project or feeding the project or nurturing the project, then effectively what do you do? You end up with all of these very convoluted arguments and, you know, quite rightly, as you said, Kier, like confused uh, conceptions of, of, of various different um, pieces of social analyses. Yeah, I think you're right. And there's, al- there's also the long legacy of the Russian Revolution and the, you know, the, the, the fact that the lesson many people drew from it was that, well, you can only get a really radical political project implemented if a committed group of prof- professional revolutionaries more or less by accident, but also through careful opportunism, managed to seize control of the situation during a deep crisis. And from that point of view, what you're always looking, you're looking for opportunities to do that. But what you're not interested in doing really is like building up mass institutions of democracy, building up large scale social coalitions. And as I've said on the show many times before, I think one of the big weaknesses with Corbynism was that I think some of the key people advising Jeremy, that was really where they were coming from. They they didn't they weren't actually interested in the idea of Corbynism as a broad-based mass movement. They were interested in it as a historic opportunity to more or less by accident seize control of the state. Um, which obviously they didn't get to do anyway. So there's also something you hear quite often and it and um it's come up in a range of recent work, I think, which is the question as, as to whether there is really now a sort of democratic solution to climate change. So there certainly is a body of opinion on parts of the, what you might call sort of eco-communist left, I suppose, um, which would say, well, actually, we're not going to be able to have anything resembling democracy during any imaginable short to medium term future where we are resolving the problems of, of climate change the problem with that i, I mean it, it, this reflects some other other debates as well such as there was that book by jeffrey mann and somebody else who i can't remember called climate leviathan who sort of lets set out a, a whole series of ways in which you might tackle a climate crisis and climate leviathan is the one that you're probably talking about jeremy which is you can't have democracy because people will have to have to um or 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 this is the way it's set out. People will have to vote for a diminution of their of their living standards. I don't know if that's particularly true. I think you'd have to sort of have to change the way we think about uh, what we value from life, basically. But that's that's the way it's sort of set out. People won't vote for that, so you're going to have to rely on 
these sort of like big leviathanic governments basically who will do the right thing uh, they're sort of talking about let's cross our fingers and hope the chinese communist party know what they're doing basically not my strategy but they have this third strategy which they which is this network um, i can't quite remember how they put it not not strategy x or something like that basically which is which is something we think we'd be more on board with, which would be, you know, the way you deal with climate change is not to say, well, democracy won't work because people won't vote for their own interests, but it is to intensify democracy, change it from purely sort of representative democracy to the sort of participative, nitty-gritty democracy that that Jeremy was talking about earlier in terms of, of where the new left wanted to go as soon as the sort of mass party system sort of broke down. And that would involve things such as pushing democracy much, much further than it ever has before. So you'd have been talking about democratizing the economy and perhaps like linking democracy to ownership. So through things such as the commons, et cetera, which and the commons is, you know, you have a, you have a resource which are democratically, it's commonly owned, but it's democratically sort of governed at the same time. And so that would produce a very, very different idea of what democracy is and perhaps the effects of democracy and and would be a way around that problem of why would why would people vote for their living standards to decline? They basically haven't so far. So why would you rely on that? I think it's another way around that 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 problem. I think. Yeah. Well, obviously that's obviously that's our preferred. That's my preferred solution. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's the one that's least mapped out in the climate iPhone book. I mean, I think climate change is an important issue because for me, climate change sort of marks the limit point of any kind of democratic efficacy. I mean, when I'm explaining this to students, if I'm trying to explain the idea that there's been a deep crisis in democracy since the 70s, then the most overwhelmingly persuasive example, I think, is simply this, that we've we've known about climate change since the 80s, at least. Uh, it's been widely known. There's been a wide consensus that it's happening and what its causes are and what it would take to stop it. But we haven't been able to stop it because... And it's that, that is the thing that democracy is supposed to be able to do. If functioning democracy enables collectives on whatever scale to take decisions about which affect the, their futures and to act on those decisions, and that is the thing that is just, has been not able to happen at the level of, at any level which would have a meaningful impact on climate change. And that's partly why I think any kind of anti-democratic response to climate change isn't ultimately going to work because it's not that it's not democracy that has produced the climate crisis it's the breakdown of democracy it's the lack of democratic efficacy i think if you think about why why democracy is in so much trouble now behind the sort of political moves there's just this background of this like you basically cannot have a functioning democracy like democracy sort of presupposes some sort of level of equality that we can go back to this like majoritarianism argument and anti-majoritarian tendencies amongst the US right in particular right the way back to to sort of ancient Greeks democracy was always was always linked to rule by the poor because the poor are, are more numerous than the rich this is an argument by Aristotle and so you know that uh, that it was always seen as like Aristotle was against democracy because he saw it as ruled by the poor who would sort of overthrow the the, the rich and it would lead to tyranny etc 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 but like that is the way that democracy was seen all the way through the, the sort of like democratic revolutions that took place in the 18th century and then the sort of the working class movements to for democracy that took place in the 19th century like chartism in the uk you know chartism was always seen as you want democracy because democracy is the thing which will allow us to make society more equal 
to overthrow the the rich. And of course, right, the period in which we had democratic efficacy was the period was basically the one period in which you had increased equality in terms of material equality. In fact, the real decline in the 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 wealth of the 0.1 percent right the way up to like 1976 is the point at which their wealth is at the the lowest level and you know material equality is is the most level well probably in in, in british history and it's just been the complete reverse since then basically so yeah so underlying this 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 thing of like let's democratize society is yeah but in order to do that you have to take on and defeat these incredibly powerful sections of society which basically is another reason. I think. I think that is another another way in which perhaps the Blair right or the Labour right think, look, that's not going to happen. And if that happens, it's just going to, you know, how how is that not going to? That's not going to happen. So we have to be really comfortable with people being extremely, extremely rich. But this goes full circle to to what we were saying earlier: is that if people feel like they have no agency through the democratic structures, because in, in their lived experience, those structures have not delivered on any of their wishes, whether or not those, those wishes are actually them voting for their own interests or not. If their impression is, and probably quite rightly recently, that they are unable to make a difference through those structures, through participating either, you know, on on trying to influence the local council on changing this thing, or like whether it's about, you know, voting in a general election, or whether it's about making any change, then then their understanding is that democracy is just is is not is not going to work for them so why should they be agitating for democracy rather for, than the specific thing that they want yeah you're yeah you're totally right you're totally right i mean that but this is i mean this has been i've been banging on about this for years i mean i, I mean i was banging on about it when ed, when ed was labor leader and very repeatedly when jeremy was labor leader that look the only way I could envisage this situation being addressed under circumstances like ours um, in Britain today is the only people who really have a public platform who'd be senior politicians, you have to have at least one of them at some point come out and say all this, come out and say explicitly, look, representative liberal democracy hasn't been working since the fucking 70s. And we need to really address that. Like we need to address the scale of that crisis. And I, I know there's a handful of Labour MPs who are willing to say that. You know, Clive Lewis is giving speeches along those lines. People like Crudders, to be fair, have sort of said this and are willing to say it. There's a handful of others, that, but they tend to be these these idiosyncratic, these slightly maverick MPs who are sort of on the left of the soft left. Like the campaign group, most of the campaign group in people like, including people like Corbyn, even McDonnell, although McDonnell will say it in private and at, at small meetings, won't come out and say it. Because they think it undermines the morale of their supporters, who they want to believe that basically going out, getting them elected into government would pretty much fix everything. So I think it's a real problem. Like it's a really endemic problem. I think yeah, even you know you look at the new, the some of the youngest of the left wing post Corbynite MPs in Parliament now, people like Zara, they're never going to come out and say that they're committed to this sort of Benite rhetoric which is based on a, a critique of capitalism, but an implicit promise that, well, if you get them and a government made up of people like them elected, they'll be able to fix it. Then, And they don't actually come out and say, look, actually, 
Parliament is a completely in, you know, ineffective institution and we've been living through a massive crisis for decades. And I think that's what it would take. That's what you re- we really need political leadership from people who are willing to say that. Because that, that's the rational, because that's the rational thing. The rational thing is this all doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. That's, That's the rational thing. No, exactly. Because I think I think it would massively resonate with people. Well, I think this is what people were looking for. A lot of the people voting for Brexit, you know, they were expressing exactly. their sense, that, exactly. their correct sense that institutional democracy it's hasn't fucked. been working since the 70s. And the response so often, even from the left, is just to give people a, a sort of moral exhortation. So, well, if only if everybody votes, it'll all be exactly. it'll all be fine. We'll exactly. come out and vote. And I've been well. I, I mean, I've been saying this. I mean, to be honest, I've been saying this in some for at least ten years. Jeremy, you've been saying 25, this. 25, 25 years. Wow, we've not heard the Jeremy twenty five years before. I've been in little meetings, little seminars, and the topic of voter apathy or young people not being engaged in politics, blah blah, has come up. And I've been saying for twenty five years. Don't you think the point is the reason like these young people or people in general are not interested in politics is because they are right. They are correct on the basis of their own experience that actually voting doesn't get what they want. And they, and I just have been met. Every, you just get met every single time with sort of blank looks. But to be honest, I got met with blank looks by, you know, people like Jeremy Corbyn for saying that as well. I think it's really one of the, the biggest weaknesses of the left. And when you start talking about this stuff, the sort of, and the sort of orthodox left, for the most part, they just sort of glaze over and they say, people aren't interested in that. People want to hear about jobs and homes. And you say... I think the moment matters, though. I think I, I would think that I would, I would be sympathetic to people not wanting to... to, to to talk that talk during a moment like, you know, 2017 or the 2019 election when there was actually, you know, everyone was just giving it everything they they got in the hope that there might be some sort of shake up. But I think, you know, it's 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 moments like now where we should be talking about this stuff. So, well, one of the great experiments in democratic music making to come out of the avant-garde of the 60s was an organisation called the Scratch Orchestra, which was basically the idea was completely untrained musicians would participate in playing these musical pieces, which I think were sometimes composed or semi-composed and sometimes improvised. Sometimes they were using graphical scores i think uh, people like eddie prevost from amm were involved but the the real leading light was the avant-garde composer and musical activist cornelius cardieu who at some point in the history of the scratch orchestra went from being a sort of 60s countercultural radical to being a committed maoist who then wrote sort of in pe- peasant marching songs to be accompanied by a solo piano. They're, they're examples of like the, of democratic music making because, you know, that that sort of graphical, that graphical scores idea is that, you know, they, they, that Cardi would like, you know, they'd, he'd score some music using these graphical uh, notations, which wouldn't have a particular, I wouldn't have one fixed specific means of playing it, right, basically. So there's always sort of a, uh, uh, some sort of negotiation between the players and the conductors, et cetera, et cetera, about how it would turn out in the end. So it's like, it's an instantiation of this like democratic politics that he carried through in his, his other life as well. And the only other thing I was going to say was this biographical note of Cardew dies in 1981. He gets knocked down in a, in a sort of hit and run accident. And then they were like, and he was coming back from the central committee meeting of the, of this small Maui sect he was a part of. But like, basically after that, people, 
his party members thought he was killed, basically. They thought he was killed either, you know, by fascists, because they were very strongly involved in anti-fascist work in that, at that point, or more nefarious, by more nefarious people, MI5 or something like that. So, you know, his 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 actual autobiography, on sorry, his biography is just really uh, sort of interesting and uh, worth looking into. So, well, let's hear a bit of The Great Learning by the Scratch Orchestra from 1971. Yep. Stick that in your pipe and smoke it. Great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think famously, well, not so famously, but on the show, I've said I don't really care about democracy before. So I think I need to, you know, explore that now. I'm really interested in this means to an end because I'm, I'm not sure that I care necessarily about democracy as an, as an end because I'm interested in the in the in the social relations and the and the 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 goods and services and products of justice at the end point and i think that democracy can deliver them um but i'm not i'm not sure what a democratic society really looks like well i mean there's lots of definitions of democracy i tend to think and one of, i would say firstly i'd say one of the problems historically with defining democracy is that over the course of the 20th century, especially in English language discourse, there's a massive conflation between liberalism and democracy to the point where if you ask a lot of Americans, what does democracy mean? They'll list a set of features of liberalism, like individual rights, which isn't historically what democracy means at all. Democracy historically means the rule of the many, you know, the pop, some form of popular sovereignty. And the... Um, and then the idea of liberal democracy, which is exemplified by things like the American Constitution, is is actually that liberalism and democracy sort of modify each other. So you don't just have majority rule. You have majority rule plus a lot of safeguards for individual rights and individual property. And that and then you get to the point where by the late 20th century a lot of people seem to think it's the latter is just what democracy means at all so the whole question well what do we even mean by it and how much do we want is really is really complicated and i think you know it's always important to take note of the fact that well if for example if democracy just means majority rule well then it can mean a situation in that case in which a majority decide to violently oppress and even genocidally murder a minority so then there's a whole question as to, well, in that case, if you want to say democracy is like a political good, do you mean something other than just majority rule? Or do you accept that, you know, there are other ends other than democracy, that the democracy might be a means to or might not? And one version of that, one response to that dilemma is, as you've just said, Nadia, said, well, you want a situation in which people are getting services, people are getting a good life, and democracy is one way of getting that. And, and my response to that would be twofold. Like on the one hand, I would say, I say, look, even if you just have an instrumental approach that you only want democracy as a possible means of everybody getting decent schools, decent lives, de decent working lives, decent personal lives, I would say there is no other way. 
There is no other way you're going to get those things apart from through a deepening and extension of democracy and all other promises to deliver those things by any other means are illusory, have been shown to be illusory. They are fantasies. They must be dispelled. But I would also say from my point of view, when I talk about democracy from a sort of philosophical perspective, I, I mean, I have thought, I've thought and written about this quite a lot. And I think for me, there is something about the inherent complexity and multiplicity of any group, which means that for me, what democracy means is it means any group on any scale expressing its creative capacities in a way which will necessarily involve a sort of expression of its complexity and its multiplicity. And that is what I mean by democracy, mate. And I think for me, that actually is a sort of end in itself, a society in which the collective capacities of human beings are maximised in ways which cannot happen either through simple majoritarian, like oppression of minorities by majorities, or through purely market mechanisms, or through sort of limited government. I mean, that is what I think I want. And how is that different from civil society or like active communities or concepts like that? Well, it's not really. I don't really like, I'm a bit, I tend to be a bit, like I'm a bit sniffy about the concept of the term community because it gets thrown around yeah, so you're much. Yeah, right, you're right. I prefer, it, I prefer the term collectivity because it's okay. less loaded, but it right. isn't one. Yeah, for me, that's just what, demo- I mean, this phrase I use sometimes is potent collectivity. It's just collectivity. People are able to do other things, to do things with other people in groups. That's it, really. That's all it means on any scale. Like it might mean just organising like a, a, a board game night with your friends, or it might mean solving climate change. But on, my argument is always on some level, like whether you want to just organise a board game night with your friends or you want to solve climate change on a planetary scale, people have to be able to do things with other people to make the thing happen they want to happen. And they have to be able to coordinate their activities with other people. And is and is that what the big Cameron's big society was kind of tapping into and co-opting? Yeah, I think that was, yeah. I think there's a percent, yeah, that's is one of many, many things, I think, which have tapped into it, yeah. I mean, I would say like a big part of contemporary platform culture, like social media culture, is people, is channeling people's desire for a genuine desire for collectivity, for participation, yeah. for collective creativity, for conversation and deliberation, and, and then just making it useless and just turning it back on itself most of the time. <laughs> Not always. No, I think that's right, though. I mean, even you can see it when when sort of <laughs> social media is best or Twitter is best, perhaps, is when you like something sort of sparks off, um, and uh, perhaps a meme gets developed, or, or, or and then somebody else comes along and, and like alters it, and it's even funnier. And somebody else alters it, and it's even funnier. And the thing that comes out at the end of it seems like you feel as though you've created it, even though perhaps you just had one part in that moment. It is that collective creativity, you know, that collective participation. But and what the, the way you're describing it, Jeremy, which I obviously find very attractive, leads us back to, um, you know, the whole Spinoza conception of joy, right back, you know, which we discussed perhaps on, perhaps in the first episode of the second. podcast. Perhaps the second, I'm not sure. Yeah, the second, you're probably right. I know them off my heart. So, so that's sort of like it's based, yeah. So it's it's the um, you know that 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 feeling of joy is that you know increasing your capacity to affect the world or be affected by the world. But one thing that comes from that is, you know, it relies on also having a, a better understanding of of the world and how it works and how we can intervene into it, etc. I think that might lead us to something 
which is a more tricky sort of problem, which is, you know, are there preconditions to to fully participating in democracy in that way? And there, there are, like there are there are material preconditions, there are intellectual preconditions, perhaps that's something that, we, you know, people might find awkward to talk about. There are probably like psychological preconditions to that. Um, and that like leads to this other problem of of democracy or, or, yeah well perhaps the great paradox of democracy it's almost like a catch-22 really it which is which is that idea that like which comes first democratic institutions or democratic people democratic subjectivity because they both seem to presuppose the uh, the existence of the other do you know what i mean in order to have have democratic uh, uh institutions you need the people who with the right sorts of uh, attitudes to participate in it's, that. It's so hard. Yeah. I think because if you have collectivities, you know, groups of people who, for them, the unit of movement is the family and they don't want to engage outside the family, for example, which is a reality in lots of places in the world. It's a reality a lot of parts of Britain in different in different sections of society. Then, then how do you create that engagement outside the household? Mm. It's a thing, especially yeah. if, you, if you think the world out there is is dark and works against you, mm. then it's it's really regressive, in my view. I mean, but that that leads into into the the other argument against democracy, which is we should have minimum amount of democracy rather than the maximal democracy. Jim is talking about we need minimal democracy, or de- it, it, because basically we want to have to increase the the realm of of private life allow people to go off and live their private lives i don't think the private public distinction holds up but it's a really central distinction in liberalism for instance the answer to that would just would be i think that is that you know or the answer to all of that is um there's you know there's only one way to to increase democracy and that's to participate in it you know what i mean I like you know that people need to be trained in democracy, and the only way you, tra- you can get trained in democracy, come to think of it as like a natural part of your life, is to participate in it. So presumably, you need to, you know, you need to try and build up the amount of people who will participate and get that glimpse of the joy of democracy, if you want to put it that way, Demo- or joy of having control, collective control over their lives. You have to build it up, perhaps through institutions, by democratizing certain parts of the economy, developing these sort of commons, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And then at some point that becomes the, you know, that has to be linked up. On the DIY kind of theme, I think we should definitely play a song by um, Shonen Knife for like an amazing Japanese kind of alternative rock punk type band who were formed in Osaka in, in, in 1981, which I had the pleasure of um, seeing live at all tomorrow's parties, I think about 10, 10 years ago. And uh, they've got, yeah, this really kind of underground garage rock kind of sound they've got this kind of diy aesthetic the energy of all of their material is amazing they're really great but i should say yeah they're 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 all female band if i didn't say that and they're they're amazing But arguably, you know, going back to the big society thing, like Britain is 
uh, an island where there's a, a lot of, if we're going to take that definition of democracy, you know, what what about volunteering? Like all of these yeah. people who volunteer and like meet up, you know, and I'm one of them. And I know a lot of people who do all of this stuff in their local community. I don't think, I don't think much of it these days has much of an effect on the direction of, you know, society or politics whatsoever. But what it does is it definitely creates joy and it definitely creates, what was the word that you came up with, Jeremy, that wasn't community? Collective, potent collectivity. I think that's good. Let's work with that. It creates (laughs) that sense of collectivity. And I mean, definitely when I go and and volunteer at, at, at an event like I did in my local park run this morning, I feel much better about my day because I've gone and I've hung out with a group of people and done a thing. How do all of these activities actually change society well okay well one argument based on what you're saying is it it engenders that 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 experience that that is possible and so going back to the the question that Kia posed about which comes first but democratic people <laughs> or a democratic um society or institutions in in that sense i think people perhaps who participate in groups or you know or, or collectives of some sort doing an activity together are more likely to believe that the institutions are possible, so we'll invest in them. But again, it goes back to the you know the the, the cynical position is of that if you know like like you were saying, Jeremy, with a lot of young people, if 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 all of the 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 official ways of being democratic are not working, then maybe it it it, it will mean that people are less likely to to participate in any kind of group activity. That's my fear. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, this is all really important. So one of the great uh, theorists of democracy in British political theory over the past few decades was the left-wing thinker Paul Hurst, who started out as a 70s Althusserian Marxist, but he became a theorist of what he called associational democracy. And the argument was basically, indeed, if you take seriously all these arguments we've been putting forward, then partly what you want to do is build on all those places in society where people are already engaging in forms of democratic association, which would be another phrase for describing what we've been calling like potent collectivities or active communities. And then building on that to make that a sort of model for democratic institutions at a political level, a workplace level, etc. And I remember, I guess we're going back sort of 15 years now, like pre-Corbyn, really even pre-Ed Miliband's Labour leadership. There was huge, there was lots of excitement on the sort of centre-left about community organising, especially as it was being promoted by what was then called the East London Communities Organisation, Telco, but then became the basis for this organisation, Citizens UK. And their model, indeed, it was this classic version of the community organising model where what you had to do is you had to go find people who were already, indeed, part of active communities. And then you would organise on the basis of those. You would recruit those communities to wider federations of of action and you would organise some campaigns on those, that basis. And there was a lot of excitement, and there was a lot of excitement because they seemed to have had some success. Um, yeah, I remember this era. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure you do. Yeah, I'm sure you remember it as well as I do. A lot of excitement because they seemed to have had some success, and they had particularly they had had some success getting significant wage rises for cleaners, uh, big institutions like banks and some universities in London. Uh, they never had any other big success again of any kind ever, like as far as I know. Like and. 
I mean, what, but part of the problem with it, with it was, well, everybody got very excited about this and lots of people went and did training with them. I never did training with them, but my personal interaction was not once, but twice. They did this thing to me with what, what they call a relationship meeting, where they come around your house, they send some, and they sort of quiz you and they try to sort of recruit you or work out whether they're interested in recruiting you. And it always ended up with me having these arguments with them because basically when it came down to it, the core of their organizing uh, group and, uh, and their ideology really were religious people. And, in if, and I kept saying to them, look, what do you think constitutes a community? Like, I'm all for the model, but what are your parameters? Like, what counts as being part of a group? And basically, they only had two types of institution they would recognize as, as representing a community, and those were churches and primary schools. Uh, and so in particular, trade union branches, lots of people I knew in unions spent years trying to work with them and just failing again and again to get anywhere with them because they were really, really sniffy about even recognising workplace union branches as, as communitarian institutions. Because essentially what they meant was, well, you had to be an institution that was grounded in a very specific locality and represented a more or less ethnically and ideologically homogenous group of people within that locality. And if you're not part of one of those, you're not in a community. And I kept having this argument with them at the time. I kept saying, look, you're talking about a tiny fraction of the population. What about all the other people who'd like to be in some kind of active community, but they're not? And in effect, what it came down to is that they thought those people weren't, were, were not worth bothering with because they were morally degenerate because they should be going to church, frankly. And so that was a real kind of limit. And for me, I, the argument I kept having with them at the time was, so look, you, you shouldn't, it's fine to organise people who are active with their local primary school or their local church, but you know, you shouldn't rule out like ruling out people whose communities are all online, they're all Facebook groups. Because for some people, that is the the community, the active community they're part of. Like you've got to you've got to have a really capacious idea of like what what it means to be part of a of a collectivity that can do something. And it's inter- there was interesting echoes of those debates in the early days of momentum. There was the debates between the people who who thought that momentum should only be organised on the basis of local branches who met face to face. And people who thought, actually, there should be these networks of people who could organise online because you had to accept that, actually, that's just how a lot of people organise themselves today. One way to take, to take one direction to take this discussion is um, both the benefits and the big, big, as we all know now, drawbacks of collectivities through social media, such as Facebook. And, you know, the, the algorithms of social media as they are now does not mean that they would have to be that way in the future, et cetera. And also the idea that, you know, well, we have to start where, where people are. So we have to start with religious groups, et cetera, et cetera. All of those, I think you can take into account in democratic politics, but you have to think of it like just because that's where people are now, you can't be satisfied with that and say that, that, that that's the limits of democracy. Instead, it's got to be, I think you have to have an idea of like transition. You have to say, well, this is where we are now, but we need to get over here somewhere, basically, in order to have a fully functioning democracy. But who's we? How are we? Who's we in this? Who's the actor here? Because in a way, it could sound like Leninist entryism. <laughs> in another, in another sense, it can it can it can sound like uh, you know community organizing. Like who's the we in this case? Yeah, I mean, all right, that's a debate I didn't want to uh, want to have now. But like basically, that the, the the we is like there isn't an a, an out of that. The we is us as you know what what whatever us three discussing uh, well, what this we now. desire okay fine 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 but, but also but also you know whatever organization you can pull together around that you know i've got mm-hmm. several we's that i'm involved with in who discuss this sort of thing and try to act in a way to bring it about uh, and if we wanted to think about that how that would work in a non sort of like 
top-down manner. We probably think about the go back to the discussion we me and Jeremy had with Rodrigo Nunes and think about that that idea of thinking about this whole thing as an ecology. But what mm-hmm. I wanted to go back to to concretize my point about like you have to if if we just take the the collectivities that exist now and say, well, that's a material for democracy. That's a material we start with, but we have to create new material for democracy. Just to concretize that, the big the, the big critique of Cameron's big society, and there's a modern iteration of that called conserv- community-powered conservatism, which is, in fact, gone a lot more radical. Uh, or, or, yeah, it's, there's more radical tinge to this community-powered conservatism than there was for the big society, but it's the same ballpark. The big critique of the big society was you know basically you're going to give resources to those communities who are who can, who are active and can take control over over community assets and these sorts of things well we know what those communities are those are the communities which have you know people with spare time to donate people with high levels of material resources people who aren't working four or five two or three jobs in order to make ends meet this so basically what you had was a, a redistribution of resources towards more well off communities yeah, because yeah, yeah. they were the ones Excellent who point. could more f- easily fulfill the preconditions for democratic participation so you you've got to say well right yeah well we have to have to start with that and then include in our plans ways in which to overcome that and that brings us to this this other bit of like well what are the material conditions for participation in democracy free time some sort of sense in which uh, we can actually have an effect but also like we have to take seriously the psychological the psychological effects of inequality, basically, and just the like, huge diminishing it has on people's confidence mm. and their confidence to be able to participate in in stuff, which brings us to a to a bigger a conception of democracy. I think you know this idea of a democratic culture, and it brings us to like music and the stuff that we all like talking about. Um, you know about the periods when you know or the, or the scenes or the, the places where people have uh, can actively participate in creating a culture that they they live within those are the moments where we look at and think well those are really democratic moments okay uh, we thought we'd play something by person fans orchestra some bit of music being played by them be- just because they are a moscow orchestra who came out of the revolution and in the 20s became famous for an orchestra that got rid of the conductor instead of having a conductor they just make all the musical and directorial decisions collectively and uh when Kira and I were talking about this and 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 uh researching it we only found out at that moment that actually they were refounded just about 10 years ago apparently and um not even 10 years ago and are currently active as a conductorless orchestra so that's really fascinating One of the big critiques of democracy is that look, people don't want to do it. Don't, people don't want to participate. And if we did have, if we did just have an extension of democracy, we'd just basically get people caught up in their passions, etc., producing dangerous results. You know. And the answer to that we can look at is well, let's look at where there are, there is democracy or democratic moments in our society, and whether you have like deliberative democratic moments, and just look at the results. And a really good example of that is the recent trial of the 
of three people who were involved in pulling down the Colston statue in Bristol. So Colston was a, a, a big slave owner in in Bristol. And, and you know, philanthropist, don't forget. Yes, and a philanthropist, yes. <laughs> and so 100 years after his death, the, the, a, a, a society in um, Bristol decided to erect a statue, apparently for his philanthropy. Although it's probably just to, you know, erect. It's a prominent monument, a monument to a prominent hero of their class. Yes, Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. The fact that he was responsible for, I can't remember how many, a huge number of of people becoming enslaved, huge amounts of death. Uh, He made his money out of sugar and um, uh, was directly involved in in the mid-passage slave trade. And basically... People just tied a rope around his neck, had a big demonstration, pulled the statue down and dumped it in the river. It was a joyous moment. I felt the joy of democracy watching it <laughs> more or less live on social media. And basically they got took to, to, to trial. A trial happened and they got found not guilty. People sat down and like went through the evidence and went f- fought through the, through the issues and basically said, no, they're not guilty. What were they not guilty of? Not precisely? guilty of criminal damage. Right. Uh, and you know, there's lots of footage, and they admit, yes, they pulled him down, they chucked him in the in the river, which would come under some sort of idea of criminal damage, presumably. So they made a political defence, basically. The point is that you know, straight afterwards, the tabloid papers did some some instant polling, and you know, the, the that showed that 53 percent of the population disagreed with their with the verdict of them being found innocent and only 23% agreed with that verdict and so that meant the public said that this really really strange thing our jury's out of touch <laughs> which is just insane because obviously juries are, are, are randomly selected members of a of the population but it shows the difference between you know a, an opinion which is just polled in a sort of focus group way that Jeremy was talking about earlier with people who sit down and deliberate and that produces different outcomes basically and it produces basically much more intelligent outcomes so that is really strong evidence that deliberative democracy does work it does produce intelligent outcomes uh, and so that's a really big answer to to one of the big critiques of, of democracy all right so one of the great slow one of my favorite ever slogans it, it, i love these slogans from the 60s from especially from the american new left you know freedom is an endless meeting is one i think we've talked about before if we haven't <laughs> we'll talk about it again we'll do an old episode about it it's that's, a, that's it's the title of a book isn't it i yeah, can't remember the book it's a great by. book by poliato it's a it's yeah. a book about about the way in which social movements use democratic sort of institutions but one of the others, one of the other great slogans, and it's the title of James Miller's book about students for a democratic society, is "Democracy is in the streets." And I guess the only one of us who's ever really been involved in a genuine mass democratic uprising in the streets is is you, Nadia. So why don't you tell us? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't think that's in, that, that's entirely true. Actually, the, the the example that I wanted to talk about first, before I mean, what what you're 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 pointing to is is my participation in in the in um, in Egypt in 2011 in Tahrir, which was incredible and amazing despite the outcome. But before we get onto that, I was I was actually thinking about the the chant, the kind of tired chant, but actually how much I love it, of this is not what democracy looks like, that's not what democracy looks like, this is what democracy looks like, which is this chant that's kind of been, that's been said over and over and over in the streets of London whenever people are in Parliament Square. And 
And it is really tired out and it's become a cliche, but, but actually I really like it. And I think it points back to what we were just talking about is that if democracy is about participation and you're effectively saying, look, us here now doing this thing, this is what democracy is. It's this collectivity that is democratic rather than that image of the elected parliamentary you know, MPs then that's quite significant because th those are very, very different conceptions of what democracy is. So I just wanted to start with that, really. And that if we're saying democracy is on the streets, I mean, it can't just be on the streets. But, you know, when we were talking about collectivities earlier, I thought I was thinking to myself, fucking hell, it's been a really long time since I've been in a demo. And there's a demo going on right now as we're recording the show for the cost of living crisis. And in a sense, I, I, part of me was thinking I should have been there. Because because big groups of people, I know it's fashionable for people to say that they don't like big crowds of people, but I love them. And I actually think it's really important for human beings to experience being in those big crowds. And and I think that is a really central question, actually, of that, if that, of that is that an essential part of democracy? Like be participating in those waves of movements or of protests when they come? Because of course, historically, there'll be a lot of people who have never gone to one of these things, but it's so kind of central to, to how we've engaged with the public being on you know, an active left. And so it's interesting for me to also observe that from the outside, because, of course, there are some people who would think, well, you know, what happened in Tahrir and what happened in the anti-war movement and what's happening on the streets now around the UK, all of those A to B demonstrations, that's not democracy. It's a really interesting because there's a because, of course, there is this whole view and that is absolutely the view of like the Labour right, for example, and indeed, uh, the liberal political class in this country that, well, yeah, we, look, the, there's a legitimate kind of democracy and it's representative democracy. You elect your representative. They are a professional. That's their job being your representative. And that's legitimate. Whereas what you're describing, Nadia, is really just mob violence. And that's not legitimate. And I just think the whole, I mean, I've written about this loads and we've talked about it on the show. I think you can trace that argument right back to ancient Greece to some extent and, and say that, well, really, no, an actual meaningful, all meaning, meaningful democracy, what democracy feels like it is being with, being part of a crowd is part of what it feels like. It, it, exactly. I think whether or not, I think where I'm coming to with all of this is whether or not it was tactical or strategic or whether or not when you analyse these trends of different ways of expressing your voice, you know, for lack of another word or whatever, uh, lack of another phrase, of whether or not it's effective. Because we can sit here and critique A to B marches, but you know, after COVID, I feel like actually thinking about it now, I wish I was on way more like A to B marches and demos and also parties. Like though those are forms of collectivity that perhaps um if more people were involved in it would it would eventually create a more democratic society rather than the point I was making earlier of people retreating into the household 
which I think is a regression of some sort. And of course, we, we've all retreated to the household because of COVID. Of course. I could totally, I totally need a bit, I need a hit of collect, a potent collectivity. Yeah, but you've stat. got football. You've got football. Me <laughs> and Jeremy don't have football. It's not, it's not the same. It's not the same. We could also play something by the great jazz fusion band in some ways, the, the band that defined the genre of jazz fusion in the early 70s, Weather Report. We could just play, I think, Milky Way, I think is the first track from their first album. They came out of jazz, but they were famous for this. Having They had a motto which defined their practice, which was uh, nobody solos, everybody solos. The idea that there wasn't going to be, that no one musician in the band would be the centre of attention uh, for any length of time. And that sort of defined what they were trying to do. And obviously, jazz and improvised music of lots of different kinds, especially in that radical moment of the early 70s, was seen by a lot of people as a way of expressing a sort of democratic musical ideal. I guess where the report are more listenable than a lot of people who try to put that into practice. It's this big debate about like what, how do those how do those moments and these sort of like bigger not just the sort of like the, the protests and demonstrations etc but also these really exceptional moments like Tahrir, um people talk about them in lots of different ways as like outbreaks of democracy I've talked about them as moments of excess before but but you see these huge outbursts of democratic participation like 2011 was one of them we've seen it again with Black Lives Matters in various waves etc you know. If we if we wanted to come up with what what does democracy feel like in the sense of a of a potent collectivity like Jim was talking about earlier, like that's what we would point to our peak moments like that, wouldn't we? We talk about that and the feeling of like, you know, anything's possible. In fact, there's an art there's an article from the seventies by this guy Aristide Zolberg. He calls them moments of madness because they don't fit into everyday the everyday politics, and he talks about it as um, you know basically they're moments when anything seems possible. Yeah, but I'm not sure that the moments of excess are necessarily the, the the same thing because there's something there about power. Is that what the the my answer to the question of like what does de- what does democracy feel like? If we're talking about those moments of collectivity, if we're, if we're taking that as democracy, then it feels like that anything is is possible is effectively power. Like I matter. Yes, yeah, the potency. person next that's to what, me. That's met- why I use this term potent collectivity. Mm. It's potency. It's potential and power. What I would say is part of the gambit, one of the claims and hopes of the radical left for at least 200 years has been the idea that it is possible or it would be possible to create institutions which normalise and routinize the sense of potential which we normally only get in those moments of excess and revolutionary rupture. I mean, I think the reason they feel like moments of madness or they feel like moments of excess is because those are the moments when a participatory experience of democracy comes up against the limits of institutionalised, liberal, individualising, representative democracy. So I think, and I think there's really two different conceptions of politics going on, coming into conflict in those moments. But I think... 
I have to believe it's possible. It's possible to create institutions which don't feel like permanently giddy and exciting and exhilarating, but they do feel like they carry with them, you know, long term that sense of participatory potential. And that's what experiments with constituent democracy in Latin America, the participatory budgeting experiments in Brazil, in Porto Alegre, what the Soviet experiments in workers' councils and etc. All those kind of experiments in participatory deliberate forms of democracy. But in those in those experiments people had a very strong link to where they came from and what made that possible. Yeah. And we're, we're, we're quite savvy to, I would say, this is a gross generalization, but savvy to the kind of co-option and, and the kind of negative institutionalization that happens with some of these movements all around the world, where they go, okay, you've won this thing now, or we've won this thing now. And then, and then, and things become kind of bureaucratized and the kind of the political flair or the participation or the collectivity is kind of weeded out of it. One way to think about that is is like if 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 those moments are like these moments of madness, let's stick with that one, are these moments where anything seems possible? Well, is it is it just the intensity of the moment that keeps that keeps that sense of possibility open? Right. And how does it relate to the more everyday idea of politics, which people often talk about as the art of the possible, right? <laughs> which is much more constrained. How do you how do you keep those two together? I, I do think that 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 is the I do think we've got some of this. If we want to, I really do like the idea of, of potent collectivities. And if we want those potent collectivities to manifest themselves, not just in these intense moments, we do have to go, we do have to deal with this problem of finding institutional structures which can reflect them. But I don't think that, you know, I don't think we have, let's have one of these big moments and then we'll get the right institutional form and then democracy is solved. It's probably that we keep, we probably do just keep need, needing these, these moments to flare up again, basically. We need to get out of the house. We all yeah. need to get out of the house. It's spring now, isn't it, almost? So everyone needs to get out of the house. That might help. Yeah, but yeah. I also think it's that, well, it's definitely that. I definitely, definitely do need it just on an individual level. But I also think it's like these big moments are the moments when, the unheard are heard, or or new new problems emerge, which which society then has to adjust to, uh, in order to take those on board. You know, I mean, I think anyway. I just think we've got somewhere with this with this idea that there's some sort of relationship between between these moments. I mean, Thomas Jefferson talked about this. He talked about about the the, the idea that each new generation, each generation needs. I can't remember where he puts it. It's like he says, water. like our society has to go through a revolutionary process, like every two generations. You refresh or, or it'll democracy. Stagnate. Yeah, yeah. He, he says you have to water the tree of liberty with the blood of what? <laughs> Perhaps something like that. I think, yeah, we're on a much more kind of basic level. What I meant by everyone needs to get out of the house is I'm, I'm saying really seriously. Like, there's a lot of us that don't know what the what the world of collectivity looks like anymore. Like, just on a really base level. I also think I think part of what we're getting out is something that comes through when people like uh, Jacques Derrida are talking about democracy, which is the idea that it has to be understood as a necessarily open-ended thing. You can never think of democracy as something that has been achieved. Mm. It, all, it has to be something that you're constantly working on and constantly keeping open. And I think this is a really powerful argument that can be made as a critique of like institutionalised politics in places like Britain after the 70s. I mean, really up until the 70s, one of the things that is going on is it's not the case that even moderate kind of liberal opinion thinks, well, we've got our democratic institutions now. We don't have to keep working on them. That, that, 
that sort of I, the complacency only really sets in, I think, uh, after the 60s. And again, I think it's not like it's not at all an unreasonable demand, even of really mainstream politics in a place like Britain today, that we should have some political leaders who are willing to say, look, we just haven't had a serious think about what institutional democracy looks like really since the 30s like not really since women got the vote we haven't we haven't really thought about does this work like is this the right way to do it what should the institutions be and i'm always really resistant to any idea that we should have a blueprint that we should say oh we know what the institutions of a 21st democracy century democracy should look like i don't think any one person or group of people should be expected to have that i just think putting the question on the table and just acknowledging well look if you're living in a society that's gone through the kind of changes we've gone through since the 20s but you haven't really had a serious think about what democratic institutions look like you better just assume that they're probably going to be broken by this point because everyone's on the defensive because things are so shit i know but like look this isn't pie in the sky this is what's happening in chile at the moment they had this huge uprising this this moment of excess this moment of madness huge 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 uprising um and now they're going through a constitutional process where they're 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 creating a new constitution to replace pinochet's constitution and you know a leftist has just been elected as uh as president boric you know this is something real (laughs) that's happening in the in, in one part of the world and it can happen in this part of the world I think Latin America, I think, has been always like ahead of, way ahead of most of Europe and, and North America on these issues. I think partly because there's a history in Latin America. Yeah. There's a history of people talking about liberalism as a specific philosophy rather than just a, a natural common sense, which lots of people can't imagine being outside. And because the liberals always have to justify being liberals in relation to both conservatives and socialists of various kinds, that means that you can have a much more complex argument about what kind of democracy you want and what it looks like. The trouble in the English-speaking world in particular is liberalism is so hegemonic, so normative. Like Most educated people in places like Britain and America really cannot imagine a conception of democracy other than lib- really just an institutionalisation yeah, of liberalism. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. This is Asking Man. 